As Pastor Megan said, and our scripture reading for this morning is from the book of Esther, and this is chapter 1, verses 1 through 22. This takes place in the days of the ancient Achaemenid Persian Empire. This is what happened back when Ahasuerus lived, the very Ahasuerus who ruled from India to Kush, 127 provinces in all. At that time, Ahasuerus ruled the kingdom from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. In the third year of his rule, he hosted a feast for all his officials and courtiers. Leaders of Persia and Medea attended, along with his provincial officials and officers. He showed off the awesome riches of his kingdom and beautiful treasures as mirrors of how very great he was. The event lasted a long time six months to be exact. He showed off the awesome riches of his kingdom and beautiful treasures as mirrors of how very great he was. After the king held a seven-day feast for everyone in the citadel of Susa, whether they were important people in the town or not, they all met in the walled garden of the royal palace. White linen curtains and purple hangings were held up by shining white and red-purple ropes tied to silver rings and marble posts. Gold and silver couches sat on a mosaic floor made of gleaming purple crystal, marble, and mother of pearl. They served the drinks in cups made of gold, and each cup was different. The king made sure there was plenty of royal wine. The rule about the drinks was no limits. The king had ordered everyone serving wine in the palace to offer as much as each guest wanted. At the same time, Queen Vashti held a feast for women in King Ahasuerus's palace. On the seventh day, when wine had put the king in high spirits, he gave an order to Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcas, the seven eunuchs who served King Ahasuerus personally. They were to bring Queen Vashti before him wearing the royal crown. She was gorgeous, and he wanted to show off her beauty, both to the general public and to his important guests. But Queen Vashti refused to come as the king had ordered through the eunuchs. The king was furious, his anger boiling inside. Now when a need arose, the king would often talk with certain very smart people about the best way to handle it. They were people who knew both the kingdom's written laws and what judges had decided about cases in the past. The ones he talked with most often were Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marys, Marsena, and Memukan. There were seven very important people in Persia and Medea who, as the king's highest leaders, were in the king's inner circle. So the king said to them, according to law, what should I do with Queen Vashti, since she didn't do what King Aswaris ordered her through the eunuchs? Then Memukan spoke up in front of the king and the officials. Queen Vashti, he said, has done something wrong, not just to the king himself. She has also done wrong to all the officials and the peoples in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. This is the reason. News of what the queen did will reach all women, making them look down on their husbands. They will say, King Ahasuerus ordered servants to bring Queen Vashti before him, but she refused to come. This very day, the important women of Persia and Medea who hear about the queen will tell the royal officials the same thing. There will be no end of put-downs and arguments. 
Now, if the king wishes, let him send out a royal order and have it written into the laws of Persia and Medea, laws no one can ever change. It should say that Vashti will never come again before King Ahasuerus. It should also say that the king will give her royal palace to someone better than she. When the order comes public through the whole empire, vast as it all is, all women retreat their husbands properly. The rules should touch everyone, whether from an important family or not. The king liked the plan, as did the other men, <laughs> and he did just what Memokan said. He sent written orders to all the king's provinces. Each province received it written in its own alphabet, and each people received it written in its own language. It is said that each husband should rule over his own house. For the word of God in scripture, <laughs> For the word of God among us, for the word of God within us, thanks be to God. We're going to sing number 434, which is new to us. And so, and, but it has a simple tune. So I'll sing the first verse through, and then we'll start again all together. Um, it, you'll see as, as, we read, as we sing through it, it's, uh, um, it does fit uh, with the theme for today. Um, and the words were written by a cousin of mine, um, which is always nice to sort of see where things come from. Give me a minute.
Well, I was delighted to hear some chuckles out there. That is the spirit in which uh, we ought to listen to and respond to the book of Esther. We are not as uh, familiar with the book of Esther here and in many Christian churches. So this is, as Darren said at the beginning of our service, the continuation of our Festival Scrolls series. This is the fifth of five Hebrew Bible books that we're featuring in these 10 weeks. These are the five books that are read in the five major Jewish festivals that are largely absent from or ignored or just uh, underappreciated generally in Christian churches. So here we are in Esther. The Jewish festival in which Esther is read is called Purim. And in seminary, I had the great pleasure, and I mean pleasure and delight, of joining my friend Ellen in her synagogue for a Purim celebration. In Boulder, Colorado, I got to hear Rabbi Salman Shechter Shalomi, who is one of the founding rabbis of the Reconstructionist movement there in Boulder, Colorado, read the entire scroll of Esther in full costume. Wigs, costumes, it is the carnival of Jewish celebrations. People come in costumes. You are supposed to, as we heard here in the beginning, drink a lot. The rule about the drinks, it says in the book of Esther, was no limits. <laughs> the king had ordered everyone serving wine in the palace to offer as much as each guest wanted. In the NRSV, it says royal wine was lavished in accordance with the bounty of the king. Drinking was by flagons without restraint. And it is a raucous and fun experience. Rabbi Shechter Shalomi made all kinds of sound effects when the horses were coming. He did the clip clops. Um, everybody in the crowd has noisemakers. We didn't hear Haman's name yet. We will next week. Yes, that's it. Every time you hear the name of Haman, you're supposed to boo and hiss. So the reading of Esther in Jewish communities is a lively and fun affair. It is indeed a fantastical, comedic short story. That is what Esther is. Scholars agree that this is not a historical account. And its original hearers would not have, would have known that, would have known that this was in the genre of short story, not in history, right? So they would have known that, even though some biblical translations will name King Ahasuerus Xerxes, who was a historical figure, uh, and some will say that, in fact, in this short story, he is based on a fictionalized account of Xerxes, but he is not Xerxes. This is not a thing that happened. This is a short story that the Jewish people told one another. Short story doesn't make it less important, though, right? Is short story less important than history? I'm a fiction lover, so I'm going to say no, it is not less important. This is not simply entertainment. This short story was written by a minority people. 
And one of the functions that it served for this minority people was addressing lightheartedly what it is to be a minority people. And I said it's a comedy, and it is, and it also ends in mass massacre. So that's a reality. So it's a comedy that ends in massacre. So it's sort of a tragic comedy, but it has that sort of cathartic um, revenge story kind of feel for a minority people, where the people in power, they get their comeuppance at the end. So that's part of how this comedic, tragic comedic short story functioned within the community just as we mentioned the song of songs this short story esther has no mention of god there's no praying there's no explicit religious activity of any kind but there is a clear religious identity the religious identity of the jewish people and we're going to hear more of that in fact next week as the story carries on um, and so that's what that's what this story is doing. Well, today, today we get to focus in on Vashti, a woman who said no. Vashti was the queen before Esther was the queen. If you know anything from the book of Esther, you probably know about the beauty pageant and Esther being selected as the next queen. Well, this is what precedes that story. This is why there was a beauty pageant in the first place, because Vashti said no. King Ahasuerus has this bonkers, raucous partying. I don't know if you caught this, but as part of this comedic story, everything is bigger and exaggerated, right? This party lasted for six months. Did you hear that? Six months. That's, that's 180 days is what it says in other translations. 180 day party in which the only rule about drinking was no rules about drinking. Six months of partying. Meanwhile, Queen Vashti has her own, these are gender uh, divided parties, right? So Queen Vashti, it says, is having her own party for the women. We hear about the eunuchs who were this gender, uh, in, they were in between the, their own gender. Eunuchs were their own gender and they had the capacity to enter all male spaces and all female spaces. So eunuchs were often the bridge between those spaces. So we've got a six month party going on for all the royal officials. Then after that six month party, another seven day party for all the people, regardless of status and the drinking continues well a few days into that so we're now at what 186 days of too much drinking <clears throat> king ahushveras demands that queen vashti come before his party in her crown her royal crown reading between the lines many assume this means only her crown, right? She's gorgeous. He wants to show her off. This is part of the show of his might and his power and his wealth. And Queen Vashti says, no. Well, anytime anyone says 
no to a power, those powers tremble. No, and a trembling of power in the system. I'm going to share with you a bit of a story of a neighbor of ours, a friend of a friend, another woman who said no, and special thanks to Robin O'Leary for passing along her book to me. Many of you know Brenda Salter McNeil. She's a professor at Seattle Pacific University, has been a long time uh, activist in Christian circles for racial reconciliation. She's a black woman, a teacher, a leader, an advocate, and she, her most recent book is called Becoming Brave, Finding the Courage to Pursue Racial Justice Now. She, throughout this book, uses the story of Esther to reflect on her own journey of racial reconciliation. So what I would like to share with you um, are just a couple of paragraphs here. And you're so, sort of jumping in midstream, but it, I, I've picked parts that I think you'll be able to get. She calls this in her section, The Journey to Bravery. And she writes, up until this point, my reconciliation work has been deeply concerned with how my message will be received by white people. I have tried to ensure that offense did not interfere with my message of diversity and harmony. I made my message easy for them to hear, but no more. No. I have come to realize that over the years I was used by white dominant culture, probably not maliciously or intentionally, but unconsciously to make the conversation about racial reconciliation more palatable understandable and acceptable to them. But in the aftermath of the 2016 presidential election, with the white supremacy that evidenced itself in insidious and subtle ways, I made up my mind to no longer be used in this way. I will no longer preach, teach, or lead reconciliation on white dominant culture's terms. No. I have chosen to always remember and affirm that my truth, my spirituality, and my identity are rooted in the black community that raised me, nurtured me, and taught me to fight for a better world where all people can thrive. I am anchored and compelled by this faith that understands what it is to seek justice, equality, and peace. Wow, another really powerful story of a woman saying no. She writes a few pages beyond this to connect back to our children's story. About how Martin Luther King Jr. did not plan to lead the civil rights movement. But when the movement needed a name and a spokesperson, Reverend King responded, the world was never the same. You may not be familiar with the entire story, but it began on December 1st, 1955, when a woman named Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama, when Rosa said no. Community activists needed a place to hold a meeting to plan the response, a proposed bus boycott, so they asked a young local minister for the use of his church to discuss the matter, and that minister was Martin Luther King Jr. And she goes on to talk about 
his reluctant yes that was enabled by Rosa Parks's no that made the systems tremble. In many ways, Rosa is a little more like Esther in the story. She is more well-known. Many of us know her name and her story. And uh, it is Brenda Soldier McNeil who suggests that Vashti, our woman who said no today, is actually a little more like Ida B. Wells, lesser known and lesser remembered, but who laid the foundation for Rosa Parks to be able to say no. Ida B. Wells, journalist, newspaper editor, suffragist, sociologist, civil rights activist, born into slavery, who led an anti-lynching crusade in the 1890s. She said no. She saw lynching and she said no. She is credited with having spurred in many ways the Great Migration as Black folks who had been born into slavery moved north she helped found the NAACP, which exists today. She was the Vashti to Rosa Parks's Esther. Her no allowed Rosa Parks to say the next no and for all of us to know her name and her story. Because my goodness, there is a cost to saying no. There is a cost to saying no. Saying no causes the systems to tremble. Hmm and lash out. Vashti, in our story from Esther, is stripped of everything. She's stripped of everything that she owns. She's stripped of her position as queen. She's stripped of her power. She's stripped of everything. And then she's banished, killed. We, we don't actually know because she disappears from the story. She's gone. There is a cost to saying no, and it is hard. It is hard to say no, even in, in situations where the stakes are much lower than what Vashti faced, what Ida B. Wells faced, what Brenda Salter McNeil is facing, what Rosa Parks faced, even when the stakes are much lower than that. One of the examples I think of that comes from a very specific story that I, I won't tell the whole thing, but is when a joke is told in a group setting, and the joke is not funny. And uh, what do you do? Do you let it go? I have let it go. I have let it go because I was in shock, because I didn't know how to respond, because it wasn't my circle exactly. I didn't know all the people in the room. Oh, because, 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 because it's hard. Because it leads to awkwardness. You know, so even when the stakes are as low as awkwardness, it can be hard to say no. So how do we how do we combat that? Well, you know, two examples that come to mind. There was a man in my Chicago church who had a practice of saying ouch. He just said he was a gay man. And anytime, you know, news of what was happening in the Mennonite church or anything else would be said, he had a practice of saying out loud ouch, just wanted to be able to express when there was something hurtful or harmful or sad or wrong, just wrong. Like Rosa Parks knew in that children's story, kids, that you heard it, she just knew those rules were wrong. And so sometimes when something was wrong, he would just say, ouch. It's a thing I aspire to. I'm going to say, ouch, more often out loud. 
another one that Amy reminded us of when the pastors were together that heard um, black indigenous and POC folks encourage white folks to say in mixed company, there's that whole strategy of playing dumb, right? Sometimes when somebody says something mean, harmful, violent, uh, you can just say, oh, I'm sorry, I don't understand that word. Can you explain to me what that means? Or, oh, say more, what do you mean by that? Because uh, if, you, if you go toe-to-toe and -to -toe fight, you might be just doing exactly what the person wants. But there's another way that we can speak our ouch out loud. Huh, I don't understand. Tell me more. What does that mean? It's hard to say no. It can feel like a party pooper. No, 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 blah, 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 Debbie Downer. But as I often like to say, every yes contains a thousand no's. At least that's how it's been in my life. When I say yes to a direction in my life, I am saying no to a thousand others that allow me to say this yes. And I think that that also means that every no can allow a yes. Every no can allow a yes. A yes, so this is not just about saying no to what is wrong, but this is about saying yes to jubilee. This is about saying yes to collective liberation that is imagined by the God of the Hebrew Bible and the people who sought to follow that God. It is about saying yes to dignity, to centering those who are on the margins the way that Jesus did. This is about enabling a yes to the Jesus way of lifting up those who have been cast out. This is about saying yes to Mary's song of the rich cast down and the hungry fed. When we say no and the powers tremble, it allows for a yes. It allows for a yes. A yes to being the followers of Jesus in a world that will continue to cause harm and violence and make wrong rules and treat people <laughs> poorly. We get to say no to that so that we can say yes to the Jesus way of justice seeking and peace making. May it be so for each one of us. May it be so in our life together. Amen.